It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. At long last, have you no decency, sir? Listen to this news story. It's nothing sacred. There's a, this is a story out of the Daily Mail in the UK. There's a technology company that is inserting customized product placement into movies and TV shows, even old movies and TV shows made decades ago. So when I first heard about this, I thought, okay, so let's just say it's an old black and white movie and maybe uh, inserted digitally. This is only if you stream the movie, obviously. There's a black and white box of Cheerios, uh, something, in other words, that was could have been available then and is still sold today, subtly inducing you to go rush to your local supermarket and buy lots of Cheerios. But no, it's much worse than that. Um, it, it inserts, uh, as the story puts it, a Brandon beer bottle or a clothing advert on a giant billboard using artificial intelligence. In other words, you're watching Casablanca. You know, you're watching Humphrey Bogart. And suddenly what pops up is an ad, a, a sign or a billboard or something, for an Apple smartphone or a Whopper from McDonald's. In other words, it's completely and totally, uh, it's just like slapped on. They're making a big point about how much artificial intelligence you do. Slapped on some modern day service or food put into, you know, some classic movie or TV show. Uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime could be tempted by large offers from companies to insert their ads to content. This could also really tick off people who like to watch movies and TV shows. Now, they're not all old, so I guess you could have a modern-day hit, and then suddenly there's an ad for the iPhone 12 or something, but it just seems like spectacularly bad. All right, a lot of serious stuff to get to. Let's start with story number one. Uh, there was uh, today, you may not be aware of this, a climate change summit, a global summit. Now, it didn't involve anybody, uh, world leaders getting on expensive private jets and, and increasing their carbon footprint because it was all virtual. But it was led by President Biden, who gave a, a virtual speech. And uh, here's what the president had to say. The United States has resolved to take action on climate change. And Biden calling on world leaders to accelerate their own plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I don't have to tell you, but the New York Times will remind you in the second paragraph, barely three months into Mr. Biden's presidency, the contrast with his science-denying predecessor, Donald J. Trump, could not have been more striking. All right, I think it's fair to say that uh, climate change was not a big Trump priority. And he did, of course, pull out of the Paris uh, climate agreement. He did that in his first year in office. Biden, a big climate change guy, that's where the Democratic Party is right now, uh, decides to go in the other direction. Um, uh, now, Biden was also obviously talking to a domestic audience, uh, but kind of playing up there'll be lots of jobs available in a greening American economy. The countries that take decisive actions now, says the president, will be the ones that reap the clean energy benefits of the boom that's coming. Now, here's how I read that. And by the way, you know, climate change, big crisis, has to be dealt with. I'm not into the denier camp. Uh, I don't understand how anybody, given the scientific consensus, can say there is not uh, climate change going on in this world. But the question is, how do you deal with it? How fast do you deal with it? How economically feasible is it to deal with it? And what about the uh, world responsibility and not just America's? Because uh, one of my big reservations here is, 
You got a major country like China, which doesn't really do much when it comes to climate change. You got other third world countries that kind of get an exemption because they're third world countries. So if the burden, if the economic burden, and it's undeniable, falls unevenly on the U.S., then that would give me pause and would give a lot of politicians pause. And I'm sure the Republican Party is not going to be in favor of this at all. Um, so, as the Times story points out, Republicans say the U.S. should not be asked to sacrifice if the world's largest emitters will swallow U.S. efforts in their pollution. The leaders of China and India, two of the largest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions, make no new commitments to help address climate change. So President Xi of China, you know, he gave a speech and basically he said we will strive to peak emissions by the end of this decade and try to reach carbon neutrality by 2060. So he didn't commit to anything new. Um, she said China's, China's goal involves extraordinary efforts, blah, blah, blah. But it's just rhetoric. Same thing with the Prime Minister of India. Uh, we in India are doing our part, but it doesn't really seem that they are. Now, also joining this international virtual summit, Angela Merkel, Justin Trudeau, Vladimir Putin. So Biden, and this was leaked to the morning papers uh, before the early morning summit, um, is decided, unilaterally, I would add, that the U.S. should set a target of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent by the end of the decade. So just in the next nine years, the United States of America is going to cut in half its greenhouse gas emissions. In order to do that, you would need a really steep decline in fossil fuels, coal and other fossil fuels, in almost every sector of the American economy. And of course, you know, that would require approval by Congress. There's going to be a bit of a partisan fight about that. Uh, you know, to do that, you virtually have to wipe out the coal industry. So the reason Biden is talking up green energy jobs is because there'd be a whole lot of jobs lost. People who work in coal mines, people who process uh, coal and oil. These are the things that cause pollution. Our economy also happens to depend on Do I think over time it'd be great if we had all electric cars and uh, didn't have as much pollution? Sure. But getting there is very difficult. In fact, Biden's goal here uh, is greater than the Obama administration's goal. Obama had pledged a 25 to 28% reduction by 2025. Of course, this is years ago. Uh, and here's his former vice president talking about 50% in nine years. Um, and, you know, as the largest economy in the world, the U.S. has, has frustrated the climate change community by going back and forth. And the Times says, well, we've lost credibility. Well, why? Because uh, President Obama signed the agreement to be in the Paris Climate Change Accords, most of which was voluntary, but still, you know, involved setting of targets. And then Donald Trump comes along and unilaterally pulls out. Now Joe Biden comes along and wants to get back in. Uh, so, you know, if you're a country elsewhere in this world, if you're Germany or the UK or even China or India, uh, other countries, you say, well, the U.S. isn't a very reliable partner because if Republicans take control of the Senate next year, if a Republican president, doesn't have to be Trump, is elected in 2024, uh, will the U.S. flip-flop once again? In other words, if we go back and forth, depending on who wins the elections, then we don't aren't seen as a very reliable international partner. So I'm sure we'll see a lot of... Uh, climate change stuff going on, uh, debate going on, that is, in the media and elsewhere 
now that Biden has stages. And, you know, maybe to some extent it's symbolic, not not what he's committing to, if that were indeed to come to pass, but just having a summit, showing the U.S. is back, that the United States of America cares about climate change. You know, that's a very big issue in the Democratic Party. It was a big issue in the Democratic primary. So maybe uh, here's Biden doing a nod to the AOC wings or the Bernie wings, to the people who care passionately about this issue. And, and by the way, most Americans should care about doing something about climate change, but it's always been, going back to the creation of the EPA under Richard Nixon, I might add, in 1970, it's always been what is the trade-off between environmental rules, environmental protections, uh, even before climate change, previously known as global warming, was as fashionable as it is today, and the cost of the economy, because when you pass rules limiting what factories can emit, uh, you know, whether it's trading carbon credits or whatever, when you pass rules uh, requiring auto companies to reduce their emissions, that involves them spending more money on cars, which are then passed on to the consumers. So all of these things involve complicated trade-offs. I know Biden understands that, uh, but setting that 50% goal is clearly going to jumpstart a debate, and we'll see where it goes. All right, let me get to number two here. The fallout continues. The... Um, Racially charged debate continues in the uh, conviction of Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd case. And, you know, I, I, I talked, I've talked in recent days, and I have a whole column up today on foxnews.com about the increasing political polarization in American society. And you've heard me talk about this pretty much endlessly, about how we are, there is so much hyperpolarization between liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, Trump voters and Biden voters, that, you know, it becomes crippling and at times nothing gets done. But I go beyond that by saying this also affects culture. It affects the view of the George Floyd case, for example. It affects the COVID debate and what we should do about it. It affects the vaccine debate. It affects the immigration debate. Because there's a poll that was cited in this New York Times piece, which talks about political sectarianism, in which, uh, if I have this right, I'm doing it by memory, more than half, this is correct, more than half of Republicans in the CBS poll in January view the other party as the enemy. And more than 40% of Democrats in this same poll view the GOP as the enemy. And that really depresses me. They're opponents, you may hate what they stand for, but they're not the enemy. And it reminds me of Trump's, you know, enemy of the people rhetoric against the media. And so when you have that kind of situation, um, not only does nothing get done, but your whole, it used to be the people, most people, you know, obviously there's always been a sort of a portion of the population that cares passionately about politics. Then there's everybody else. You know, they kind of care. They read it in the papers. Maybe they watch some TV. But, you know, they're busy with their jobs, their lives, uh, sports, kids, school, trying to make ends meet, all that stuff. And so politics was sort of a sideline for them, but now it's part of your identity. And the reason I, uh, I, I wrote this column and the reason I'm mentioning it now is USA Today, USA Today survey in the George Floyd case. 71% of Americans agree Derek Chauvin was guilty. Remember, he was convicted of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. But here's the partisan breakdown. This is an online survey of 1,000 Americans. When participants were identified by political affiliation, Democrats agreed with the verdict 85%, Republicans 55%, independents 71%. So even, you know, with a 9 minute and 29 second videotape of 
of Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck as he pleads, I can't breathe, as he pleads for his life, all the testimony, only 55% of Republicans agree with the verdict, and 85% of Democrats do. I mean, it's just another classic example. So National View has a piece uh, about this, which I think is interesting from a conservative perspective, because it's kind of a almost a split decision, you might say. There is cause for concern, says the magazine, um, whether Chauvin received a fair trial, an issue that is separate from the strength of the evidence. And one that the judge, Peter Cahill, acknowledged when the jury went to deliberations for the whole one day of deliberations, uh, pointing to, as I've mentioned on the podcast here, Maxine Waters, the Democratic congresswoman, uh, seeming to threaten unrest. I mean, the National Review actually says she threatened unrest unless the jury returned a verdict of guilty, guilty, guilty. And the National Review brings up Biden, who said he was praying for a conviction. That was also why the jury, that was why, unlike Waters, that's why the jury was sequestered. Okay, so the defense complained that Chauvin couldn't get a fair trial in Hennepin County, Minneapolis. And while the trial was going on, the city of Minneapolis paid the Floyd family a $27 million settlement in the middle of jury selection. So the judge wouldn't move the venue, wouldn't sequester the jury, even when those uh, uh, protests with a lot of arrests were going on after this other killing in a Minneapolis suburb of Dante Wright. And maybe he should have sequestered the jury. Uh, I can see an argument for that. But then National View goes on to say, okay, all this has to be considered on appeal and all of that. Um, But you have to recognize that Floyd's arrest was lawful, but it was triggered by his passing of a $20 counterfeit bill, a comparatively trivial offense, although cops found him high on drugs behind the wheel of a car, and even acknowledging that he resisted arrest, not threatening police, but forcibly refusing to comply with their effort to take him into custody, there is simply no excusing the manner of his detention. If there's a silver lining to such a tragic story, it is about policing. Among the most compelling witnesses in the case, says National Review, were police officials. What had to have impressed the jury was how far Chauvin strayed from standard detention procedures. Police are trained that if they must use a prone restraint, they are to roll the suspect onto his side as soon as he is secured, especially if he stopped resisting in order to facilitate breathing. That's in the standard police training. George Floyd died because Derek Chauvin was a bad cop, separate from the question of whether you know the legal niceties were followed. We are, of course, mindful that police have a very tough job dealing with uncooperative and often dangerous suspects, many with drug abuse and health problems, such as the one Floyd had, which likely contributed to his death. But the police power to use necessary force which must necessarily be superior force, never justifies excessive force. And that's the um, message of the verdict, says National Review. Meanwhile, in this other case in Columbus, Ohio, the fatal shooting by police of 16-year-old Makia Bryant. Um, LeBron James, the L.A. Lakers superstar, is facing a real backlash because he tweeted a picture of the police officer who shot this teenage girl. And he put the face up and he wrote, you're next with the hashtag accountability. Now, did that um, intentionally or otherwise encourage people to um, target this officer? Yeah. So LeBron has now deleted the tweet with these other further tweeting. I am so damn tired of seeing black people killed by police. I took the tweet down because it's being used to create more hate. This isn't about one officer. It's about the entire system. They always use our words to create more racism. I am so desperate for more accountability. Okay, but 
tweeting the picture with your next, that's not just, uh, you know, speaking out against potentially excessive police force. Now, the problem with this case, I've been very worried to get into it because there's a lot we don't know. But the body cam footage was released by the Columbus police yesterday, and it showed that this 16-year-old was uh, threatening another teenager with a knife. With a knife. So it is arguable that the officer fired her shots to save this other girl. In other words, she would, the, the, whether this turns out to be true or not, the body cam footage seems to suggest that she was on the verge of badly injuring or perhaps killing another human being. And that the officer yelled four times, get down, get down, get down, get down. She didn't comply, shot her. Could the officer have shot uh, her without killing her? You know, it's a split-second decision. It's a terrible tragedy. It's awful. It's absolutely horrible that she ended up dead. Uh, but there are others, apparently some people have been tweeting about this without even mentioning the knife, as if this officer just decided to shoot a teenage girl. The Daily Beast, in its initial report, quoted Bryant's aunt, Hazel Bryant, as its primary source. She told reporters her niece was the one who called police, and that she was given no warning before they shot at her. She said the police would lie about the altercation. Well, clearly that didn't happen. And by the way, the police tried to medically assist her after the shooting. She did, uh, unfortunately, die. And... Once the body cam footage came out, the Daily Beast updated its story. So did NPR. Now, I'm not saying you can't quote a relative, but the relative may not be telling the truth, right? There's no evidence that we know of that she's the one who called 911. And there is evidence now that she was threatening somebody with a knife. And there is evidence that she was warned. She was warned to get down. If she dropped the knife and gotten down, she'd be alive today. I don't want to blame her. It's a horrible situation, but I'm just saying this doesn't seem to be in the same category, in my view, based on what we know as Dante Wright, as George Floyd, as Eric Garner on Staten Island, the guy who died uh, as a result of a chokehold about six or seven years ago. uh, And we ought to be cautious. Every case is different. We ought to be cautious and be fair to both sides before all the evidence comes out. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Haven't heard much about the NRA lately, except for its bankruptcy proceedings. But the Washington Post has a piece saying that even as leaders of the National Rifle Association are called to testify in the second week of a bankruptcy trial, the organization is launching plans to lobby Congress against President Biden's gun control measures, also backed by leading Democrats. Uh, so last night, the gun rights group announcing a $2 million campaign. I don't know, have you got $2 million bucks if you're in bankruptcy? But apparently it's still a functioning organization to fight Biden's agenda. More than $400,000 of that money will be spent on ads in Maine, West Virginia, and Montana. The ads will say, stop Biden's gun grab. And it's targeted at the uh, possibly wavering senators in those states, Joe Manchin, Pat Toomey, uh, Susan Collins, well, Pat Toomey's from Pennsylvania, but he's, he's a co-author with Manchin of a more modest expansion of background checks for gun buyers. Susan Collins and Angus King in Maine uh, may be part of a tell Joe Manchin to reject President Biden's extreme gun control agenda. There are pictures of Biden, pictures of Pelosi, pictures of Schumer. They want to ban commonly owned firearms and appoint a radical gun control activist to head the ATF alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Uh, this guy, David Chapman, spent 25 years as an as a agent, a special agent at the Bureau, 
before becoming an advisor to the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who of course was tragically shot by a crazy guy. So that makes him a lunatic? I don't know. Uh, let's just tuck a couple other things in here. Uh, Republicans don't want a bipartisan commission, a bipartisan commission, to investigate the January 6th riot at the Capitol, unless it also looks at other events, those other events being um, violence last year by Black Lives Matter, by Antifa. So the Huffington Post has a critical piece here saying, um, Pelosi suggested an evenly split commission, you know, half Dems, half Repubs, uh, according to a source, Republicans still don't like the idea. They want to examine the violence that erupted in response to police brutality. Uh, here's a quote from Mitch McConnell. We've also had a number of violent disturbances around the country in the last year, and I think we ought to look at this in a broader scope and with a totally balanced 9-11-style commission. If she were willing, she, Pelosi, were willing to put that forward, I think that would enjoy bipartisan support. So, if you want your commission to look at what happened, which obviously that would be aimed mostly at Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol and indirectly at Trump himself. We're going to look at the violence on your side, the liberal groups who did riot, smash windows, loot stores, set police cars on fire. Uh, there was death and destruction. So that's the Republican request. All right, number four. This is quite a story. So uh, because I have read many of Philip Roth's novels, because I consider him to be an incredible writer, although a controversial one, and controversial in his own life, he's often accused of being a misogynist, the late Philip Roth, I should explain. I was very interested to read that a guy who became a confidant of Roth, Blake Bailey, had written a biography of him with lots and lots of access, lots and lots of conversations with Roth, uh, you know, clearly one of the most influential authors of the 20th century, the book just came out. It's hit the New York Times bestseller list. It's mostly gotten rave reviews. Um, and now the publisher, W.W. W. Norton, is stopping shipment of the book, is stopping promotion of the book because new allegations uh, kind of spun up by all this uh, media attention against Bailey have emerged. And they're serious stuff. I don't think you can just write this off as, oh, this is cancel culture. This guy has a book and, you know, a couple of people made allegations and now the publisher's bailing on him. There are claims that he sexually assaulted two women, one of them as recently as 2015, and that he acted inappropriately toward middle school students when he was a teacher back in the 1990s. So W.W. W. Norton put out a statement saying the allegations are serious. In light of them, we have decided to pause the shipping and promotion of Philip Roth, the biography pending any further information that may emerge. Now, Bailey denies this. He put out an email saying these are categorically false and libelous. Uh, his lawyer says his client disagreed with Norton's decision to stop promoting the book. Some of the allegations have been reported by the New Orleans Times-Picayune and the LA Times. So let me give you some of the details here. Uh, the this one from 2015, not previously known publicly. Um, a publishing executive named Valentina Rice met the author, the now biographer. Uh, by the way, this guy was a Pulitzer finalist. He's written biographies of others. So he's a substantial author in the literary community. Valentina Rice met Blake Bailey at the home of a book critic for the Times named Dwight Garner, which is possibly part of how the New York Times knows about this. Uh, she had stayed at his home before. She planned to stay uh, overnight. Bailey also stayed overnight. After she went to bed, she says Bailey entered her room and raped her. She said no and stopped repeatedly, she said in an interview. 
Um, now, the she complained to the publisher. She wanted to be anonymous. The publisher told Blake Bailey about this. Blake Bailey sent her an email saying, I can assure you I've never had non-consensual sex of any kind with anybody ever. And if it comes to a point, I shall vigorously defend my reputation and livelihood. I appeal to your decency. I have a wife and young daughter who adore and depend on me. And such a rumor, even untrue, would destroy them. So that reads to me like not just defense, but like you better not go public with this. The, um, the, the publisher goes on to say, we took the allegation very seriously. We're aware of the allegation. was sent to two people at Mr. Bailey's former employer and a reporter at the New York Times. Now, here's the other case. Eve Payton, she's now 40 years old. She is a former student who works at a high school in New Orleans. She says that Bailey raped her when she was a graduate student. When she was his student, she treated, he treated her as one of his special girls, she said. Back in 2003, when she was a graduate student at the University of Missouri and engaged to be married, she and Bailey both happened to be visiting New Orleans. They met for drinks. He invited her back to his place or the place where he was staying. He initiated sex. She squirmed away. He pinned her to the bed, forcibly had sex with her. He finally stopped when she told him she wasn't using birth control. And that she told two friends about the assault after it happened, didn't go to the police, wanted to move on with her life. One of the friends uh, confirming this to the New York Times. So it's an absolute mess. And I can't really quarrel with what Norton did. I mean, these are horrendously serious allegations. Obviously, the publisher had no way of knowing at the time. It's a shame and a tragedy all the way around because it apparently is a pretty good book about Philip Roth, but this comes to the classic, you know, do you can you admire or enjoy works of art by other people over the centuries who were proven to be horrible human beings? But this is not just, you know, he was grabbing somebody at the party. These are two allegations of rape. Um, credible allegations, I would say, based on the reporting of the New York Times, and so Norton has decided to pull the book. Number five, I talked the other day uh, about the passing of former vice president and presidential candidate Walter Mondale um, and kind of reflected on his career. Even if you don't care about Walter Mondale, you're too young to remember him or you don't, didn't particularly like his politics, I've got to read you this series, some from the series of tweets by Joe Trippi. Joe Trippi went on to become a big-time um, Democratic consultant. He was Howard Dean's presidential campaign manager in 2004. He helped uh, Doug Jones win that Alabama special election um, a couple of years ago. And he worked for Fritz Mondale, as everybody calls him, um, back when he was, when Mondale was running for president and eventually became the Democratic nominee in 84, clobbered by Ronald Reagan. So Trippi starts out by talking about, he was like the state director in Iowa, and so he wasn't like a top official. But whenever uh, Mondale would come to Iowa, before they got on the plane, they would walk around the tarmac and just kind of shoot the breeze. And, and Mondale would talk about how important it was to win Iowa. No pressure. Yeah, I just need you to win Iowa. Now let me pick this up. So during one of those tarmac conversations, um, Fritz asked a dreaded question about my father, says Trippi. I explained to Fritz that my father had stopped talking to me five years earlier when I left college to join the Kennedy campaign in 1979. My dad was old school Italian. I was supposed to take over his flower shop, not go to college or run off to become a political hack. Fritz asked a few more questions and then joked with me that my dad was wrong about a lot of things, but maybe I should have listened to him about going to work for Kennedy. Um, I was lucky to have worked for both of them. Um, so they have that conversation 
And then it goes on to talk about the rest of the campaign and how his other dealings with Mondale. And then he ends up running Pennsylvania for Mondale. Mondale at that time was down substantially to, to Gary Hart. If he didn't win Pennsylvania, probably his campaign was over. But somehow um, they managed to pull a comeback in Pennsylvania and Mondale went on to week out, eke out a win. So after the polls close in Pennsylvania and the networks call Pennsylvania for Mondale, um, Trippy got a call from an aide who travels with Mondale and said, uh, Joe Fritz wants to see you before he goes down to the ballroom to make his victory speech. Get up here quick. So uh, Trippy goes up to the hotel suite. I walk through the door. I, I was very emotional about this. There was Fritz Mondale sitting down and explaining to an old Italian guy that his son was in an honorable profession, fighting for people who are down and hurting. He's making a difference. I count on him, and you need to know that. He had somebody track down his dad, bring him to Philadelphia, and bring them together on primary night to reconcile. And when Mondale went out to give his victory speech, he brought uh, Trippy's dad with him. And Trippy, and this was, brought them together after five years. Nobody ever knew about this. Nobody ever, um, Mondale didn't, you know, leak it publicly to take credit. It was Joe's story to tell. Here it is all these years later. Mondale's passed away at the age of 93. And um, Mondale had signed, he'd used boxing gloves as a metaphor, I'm going to fight for you. And he signed those boxing gloves to Rocky Trippy with thanks. Gave Trippy the gloves. And when his dad died a few years ago, Joe Trippy buried him with those gloves. I just think that's such a sweet story. It says a lot about who Walter Mondale is. You know, when politicians do things, just to be decent human beings, not for any political advantage. There are a lot of good people in politics. There are also a lot of scoundrels. I just found it so moving. I mean, I'm reading this for the third time, and uh, it still makes me stop. I know Joe Trippi pretty well. He's a great guy, and it's a wonderful story. And on that note, thank you all for listening. Stay safe. Get the vaccine if you haven't already. Nice of you would subscribe, and we'll see you tomorrow with more books. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.